History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spooktacular people welcome to this 373rd episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i'm your host diane and this is kelly kelly on this episode we're going to be joined by one of our listeners tim stevens he's going to be sharing with us a project that he's been working on while we're all been going through the pandemic he's been working hard on his first feature film and it just so happens that it features these ghost lights in texas And while we were talking about that, we found out there's some legends and hauntings and things that go on in that area of Texas, which is known as Big Bend. So he's going to be joining us in just a moment to share all of that. I'm looking forward to digging into it. Yeah, and usually West Texas, I'll admit I've driven through it a couple of times and it's not real interesting. It's kind of flat and vast. Yeah, a little bit of sagebrush and chaparral and a little bit drier. But with some of these legends, it might be kind of interesting to see if you could see some of these ghost lights out there. We want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Emily, Jennifer, Fellman, Lori with an IE, Leon, Sherry with an IE, Dana, Lynn with an E, Cameron, Rachel, and Kelly, get a load of this. We're welcoming in a Diane and a Kelly. Fantastic. And thanks, everyone, for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now, this moment, Noddity. Last month, in the journal Cretaceous Research, a new discovery by a group of phosphate miners in Morocco's Kariba province was reported. A paleontologist from the University of Bath named Nick Longrich wrote, Those teeth are just unlike anything I've seen in a lizard before. What he was talking about was a monosaur. These were marine reptiles related to snakes and monitor lizards that are now extinct. Monosaurs had these conical teeth that could pierce and grip slippery prey. This monosaur was different than all those found before. Rather than a mouthful of conical teeth, this discovery had short serrated teeth packed tightly in such a way that they resembled a serrated knife edge. Nathalie Bardet, who co-authored the report, is a paleontologist at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris, and she wrote, I have been working on monosaurs for over 20 years. I must admit that among the 10 species that I know, this one has so unusual and extraordinary dentition that at the beginning I thought it was a chimera reconstructed with different fossils. That is quite a statement. It was so odd she thought it was different creatures put together. All other known reptiles have pointed or cone-shaped teeth but this variety had teeth more like a shark. And that certainly is odd. I'm Devin. And I'm Steph. And we are the The Podcast Podcast from from the the Crypt. Join us every Friday as we discuss accounts of murder, mayhem, paranormal, and all things spooky. Plus a dash of comedy to help soothe your soul during these chilling tales. You can find us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, etc. Also, you can find us at thepodcastfromthecrypt.buzzsprout.com And you can choose from there how you'd like to listen. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook, both at The Podcast From The Crypt. Be sure to tune in and listen to us discuss what nightmares are made of. Let's get weird. And as always, hail Satan. And we'll see you in hell. And now, this month in history.
month of February on the 21st in 1965, former black Muslim leader Malcolm X was shot and killed while delivering a speech in a ballroom in New York City. Malcolm X was born Malcolm Little in 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska to Baptist minister Earl Little and his wife. The family moved to Michigan and when Malcolm was six, his father was killed when he was hit by a streetcar. There are those who believe he was murdered. His mother was sent to an asylum in 1939 and he and his siblings ended up with family members and in foster homes. Despite these hardships, Malcolm enjoyed school and did well, but he quit after the eighth grade when a teacher told him he would never be a lawyer and should focus on manual labor. He lost his way for a time, falling into drug dealing and street hustling, and eventually he became a leader of a gang of thieves in Harlem. In 1946, he found himself in jail, and while he was there, he converted to Islam. He joined the nation of Islam that combined black nationalism and Islam. He started educating himself again and gave up pork, smoking, and gambling. He changed his last name to X, which was traditional for Nation of Islam followers. This was to ensure they were not carrying a slaveholder's name. Once out of jail, he helped grow the group, opening temples and starting a newspaper. Malcolm eventually rose to the level of second in rank. By the early 1960s, Malcolm was at odds with the leader of the Nation of Islam. He also disagreed with Dr. Martin Luther King's work on obtaining civil rights. Malcolm left the Nation of Islam and became a Sunni Muslim, and this led to animosity with the nation and death threats ensued. Three members of the Nation of Islam assassinated him on that February day. His voice was not silenced that day, however, as his ideas and passion continue on today. joined by Tim Stevens. And you guys might recognize that name because he came in first place in our flash fiction contest back in 2018 with his story, That Wretched Sound. Indeed he did. And he has co-founded Spectrograph Films back in 2019. This is a production company that is currently working on their first feature film, a sci-fi thriller called The Ghost Lights, based on a real phenomenon that occurs in West Texas. Tim, you wrote and directed that film. Is that correct? I did. And, uh, you know, I've been doing short films for quite a while now. So this is, you know, my first venture into uh, feature film territory. We can talk about that later, but it, it is quite a, a different beast doing a, a feature film, you know, <laughs> but a lot of fun. You know, I think the subject matter is like right up, you know, the history goes bump audience, things that they would really be interested in. So I actually really like that piece that I, I wrote and uh, sent to you guys. I, I kind of forgotten about that. But a, a bit of my uh, kind of homage to H.P. Lovecraft there in some of the uh, early stories that he wrote, strange fiction and, and all that. <laughs> nice. And, you know, ghost lights are such an interesting phenomenon. They're seen all over the world and no one's really sure what they are or where they come from. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not as familiar with the the legends uh, elsewhere, although I, I do know that they show up, you know, in Europe, they show up in Asia. You know, the the phenomenon of uh, will-o'-wisps is somewhat similar to that. And of course, that, that shows up in nearly every culture uh, across the world, you know, has some form of the will-o'-wisps. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the phenomenon specifically that, you know, we base this off of is the Marfalites, which is Maybe um, it's in Marfa, Texas, which is this little town in far, far west Texas. You know, it's it's the desert, uh, almost to Mexico. It is a extremely observable phenomenon, uh, whereas, you know, in other parts of the world, they show up very infrequently, and it's certainly not enough to document scientifically. Yeah, it, it's very strange. No one really knows what they are. There's a lot of theories, though for sure. <laughs> Clearly, because you have an affinity for horror films, you've chosen a topic like the ghost lights, you wrote a scary story for us, you're kind of into the paranormal and the weird. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. You know, I've been listening to you guys for, gosh, I don't even know. How long have y'all been around? Six Wait, years? Did, how many years? Sorry. Six? 
Six. Okay, well, I've been listening to you guys for at least four years. So, long-time fan. I go through these phases where I just binge paranormal podcasts. I mean, I'm always listening to something, but there for a while I was, like, really into... And that's why we drink, and I was just listening to it, like, on loop all day long. <laughs> and then Jim Harold's, you know, I listen to a lot. I'm also a big fan of the Big Seance Parlor, and I know you guys know Patrick as well. If you could see my library right now uh, behind me, it is just chock full of all kinds of paranormal books, fiction, nonfiction. And, uh, you know, I would really say it's kind of an obsession that, that drives a lot of the stories that I like to tell. Essentially, have you had any personal experiences? Yeah. Well, I mean, we had one while we were out filming the uh, the ghost lights. You know, also as as a kid, I felt like I, I had some experiences. My mom was a professional photographer and she worked in this studio in Canyon, Texas, that uh, at least somewhere in the general vicinity, there had been a photography studio since the 1800s. Very old place. Yeah, it was just all the time. It, she had the, the studio was actually in the basement where she would do the shooting. And I would go down there all the time and think I saw shadows. You know, one time I thought I saw this kind of like Mexican bandito sort of apparition. You know, I could almost chalk it up to like childhood imagination, but I have very clear memories of these things. I've always been into ghost stories. And I, you know, even as a kid, though, it used to, you know, just scare the crap out of me. Yeah, I really used to be into ghost stories, even though they scared me. And I don't know, they just kind of drove the things that I, I was interested in. And, uh, you know, while we were out filming uh, The Ghost Lights, the feature film, we actually filmed, we filmed in Alpine, Texas, uh, which is a, a little college town out in West Texas. And we also filmed in Terlingua, which is a very haunted old mining town out near the Big Bend. And then we also filmed in Marfa, just for for one scene. While we were out there, it was actually, we were filming a driving scene and unfortunately <laughs> as we were going the sun was going down and we wanted to get out uh, near Marfa before the sun went down so we could get a pretty you know kind of sunset shot because the sunsets are just spectacular out there we actually got pulled over because we had fake license plates on our car which is what what you do whenever you're filming right because you you don't want to like show real license plates because people can you know see that in the movie and then it's kind of a private information issue there uh, but you know normally we, we take them off we switched them if we're driving in between locations and we were in such a rush that we left it and so we got pulled over and you know the police officer was very nice but he took his sweet time you know taking our information and so by the time we actually got out to marfa where we wanted to film it's totally dark and the the scene was basically lost there, there was nothing we could film at that point and I, I was i was really angry like i got out of the car because i thought it was like the, such an important scene and we ended up not needing it at all but at the time i was like you know just just really like frustrated and so i i just kind of we pulled off on the side of the road and i just walked off into the dark my uh, uh lead actress got out of the car and she was blowing off steam lit up a cigarette and she looks off over the desert and goes hey tim what's what's that over there and so small crew there's only about four of us we looked out over the mitchell flat which is the area that the lights have been seen for 150 years and there in the the distance was a light and uh it was it was pretty big if i had to guess i would say it was four or five miles out there in the in the desert no roads or anything and at first we thought okay maybe that's a someone has a ranch out there so that's like a big overhead light of some sort you know um like a floodlight but pretty soon it started moving and kind of doing these little figure eights and then a couple of minutes later it split into two and they were both dancing and moving big sweeping arcs and then those two became four and then pretty soon there were six of them. They were all in tandem doing these big, just big swoops. You know, I would say like they were covering like 100 yards with each swoop. You know, it's hard to tell. But and just when we thought like they were done, they all split up and just went their different ways and just started dancing all across the, the desert. Um, they started to change colors. They turned orange and blue and red. And this went on for about a half hour. And then they just, they kind of zipped back together and became a single light and then flickered off into the, the night. And it, it was crazy. It, it, needless to say, like, I didn't feel any more anger or stress anymore. And, you know, like, you think you have experiences like that, like it would kind of freak you out or you would be afraid. But it really was kind of a magical experience. 
And yeah, I mean, it, it kind of made everything worth it because we had been shooting for about 10 days with like 12, 14 hour days. And we were just utterly exhausted by that point. Yeah, um, artistic vision be darned. It, <laughs> that was certainly worth the, the change in, in time frame for your arrival. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and what's crazy, though, is that the Marfa lights, you know, while they show up more often than other ghost lights, you know, in different parts of the world, it's not like clockwork. And just because you show up doesn't mean you'll see them. And so, I I mean, I feel extremely lucky. I don't know if they like, maybe they knew we were having a bad day and they just wanted to like make things better. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> no. But I uh, I've never that. seen anything like that in my life. And it was, I mean, it was incredible. It's, it's life changing to see something like that and to know that there's no good explanation for it. By any chance, did you grab any footage of it? So here's the thing about the Marfalites is that they don't show up on cameras, mostly because most or uh, phone cameras, mostly because most phones just can't like expose in that kind of darkness, right? It, it's just not light sensitive enough. And even with DSLRs, it's hard to get a good photo. And so most of the people that have gotten images of the Marfalites, there's a man named James Bennell, who has written kind of the definitive book on the Marfalites. But for about 10 years, he had uh, these ultra high speed, I mean, like military grade cameras that he set up looking over the Mitchell Flats and he would record every night. He did it for years. He has some very uh, amazing crystal clear images of these things. But when you're out there and you just try to get yourself, it's I mean, it's kind of it adds to the mystery because it's like you see it and you know it's there. And then you take your phone out and look at it. And you go, I can't get it. It's not there, <laughs> you know. So I wish it, it would have been really cool. I, I took a couple of shots with my phone, but they're just they're pitch black. Yeah. And I think sometimes some of the distance plays into that as well. Like how far away the lights are that you're seeing. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing about like camera phones is that they they're not meant to record something that's very far away. You know, they're very wide lenses that are meant to get something that's right there. And then, of course, like if it's moving, then that makes it even harder. You know, and these things don't just kind of toddle on. They like zip. It's crazy. And that, that just adds to the unreality of it when you watch it, because it just doesn't act like anything terrestrial that I've ever seen anyway. I love that you saw these, Tim, because the explanations and theories that people have put out about these for years is, well, you know, it's just some headlights. And even back in the day before there were cars, they would claim that maybe it was Native American campfires or something like that. But what you're describing is clearly none of those things, especially if you can't catch it on a phone camera. Uh, headlights you would easily catch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the first recorded incident of, of the Marfa Lights was actually in 1883 by a uh, young cowboy named Robert Ellison. In what, what he thought at the time, he later recorded this in a memoir and then he kind of uh, verbally to his family, which still live in Marfa today. Uh, kind of elaborate his experience, but what he described is he saw these lights at kind of varying altitudes uh, towards the Chinati Mountains, which are the kind of 50, 60 miles uh, around Marfa or the surrounding mountains. Um, and he thought he saw uh, Apache campfires, which at the time the uh, Chisos Apaches were, you know, still living in the area. And so, you know, that's a typical thing. He didn't really think anything of it. But as the evening progressed, his observation was it seemed like the mountains were moving towards him because he assumed these were stationary campfires on a mountainside, right? So if the fires are moving, it means the mountain is moving, or at least that was the illusion that he, he had. But, you know, years later, after, you know, uh, working on the ranch out there in, uh, in Marfa, he started seeing these on, you know, a very regular basis. And, you know, he came to understand that what he saw when he was 16 was the Marfa lights. And, of course, this was 30, 40 years before there would be anything remotely like headlights out of Marfa. You know, they're the I-67 out there. Like, you can watch headlights. So you know what those, lo those look like. And, you know, it's not... It's not what the Marfa lights are. UT Dallas actually did a, a study out there with some students, and they, they decided they were headlights. But when you look at the report, it's, it's kind of lazy. I, I don't want to disparage, you know, UT Dallas, but it, it was a student study, and they just kind of, like, they were looking for the most rational explanation. They were kind of like uh, Scully from uh, X-Files. You know, they just think, eh, it's swamp gas, you know, mm, it's headlights. <laughs> You know, and it's just it, it can't be because there's no highway over there. And have you ever seen headlights do a corkscrew and a vertical figure eight and then zip off into the sky? 
Like, of course not. <laughs> and now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Kelly, you and I work a lot of hours every week and long days. And one of the things we really struggle with every week is when we're getting ready to do our grocery shopping. I'm always thinking, what are we going to make for our dinners? Here comes HelloFresh to make our lives so much easier. Oh my gosh, their meals are so delicious. It's really great. It takes the stress out of figuring out what are we going to make this week. We get three a week and really the portions for us are big enough that we split some of it up. So then we have something for lunch the next day or a lighter dinner the next day. Absolutely. You know, occasionally we do hand some stuff out over to Mort. Yum. But what's great is these meals are so easy to make. They only take 30 minutes and they give you these cards that have the step-by-step. You can't screw it up. It even makes Mort a chef. Chop, chop. It certainly does. And you know what? The ingredients that come to us are so fresh. The produce, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just beautiful. Sourced directly from farmers. So eating healthier has never been easier with low-carb, carb-smart, vegetarian, and pescatarian options every week. We had three different ones that we just tried this last week. Yes. So we had the cheesy smothered mushroom chicken with mashed potatoes and roasted carrots. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It was to die for. It was so tasty. We also had pork and poblano tacos with kiwi salsa and lime crema. I would have never put kiwi into a salsa. And this was wonderful. Oh, it was delicious. I had never utilized poblano chili. So I found a new favorite to add to recipes. It was delicious beef bulgogi bowls. This has been our favorite hands down every time. We it, This one comes up and it's like, we want that one. Oh my gosh, it's so yummy. My mouth is watering just thinking about it. Bulgowat. For our listeners, HelloFresh is offering you something special. Go to HelloFresh.com forward slash bump 10 and that's B-U-M-P 10 and use code bump 10 and you're going to get 10 free meals, including free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com forward slash bump 10 and use code bump 10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. You did a lot of the filming for this in that uh, town that you just mentioned, Terlingua, and this is a ghost town. So what a fascinating place to set up a film like this. Yeah, the very first time I went to Terlingua was for a Day of the Dead festival in 2017, I believe. And there, you know, it is a, Terlingua is an old mining town. It started in the late 1800s. Mostly Mexican miners that at the time were coming across the border, uh, mostly from the the town of Ojinaga, which is right across the border from Presidio, which is uh, on the Texas side of the border. And so there is a heavily Hispanic community there and always has been. And they've just got this cool old cemetery, which I, I know y'all are cemetery lovers. Oh, yes. um, and uh, tapophiles. Yes, the right word? tapophiles. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's super cool. You know, like um, they have they have these uh, graves that they call ornitos, which are uh, above ground uh, crypts that are made of adobe and they kind of have these little reliquaries. They're recessed into them. And, you know, people put candles in them and objects that were, uh, you know, from the loved one who might have been there and these cool old wooden crosses like it's it's something out of like the good the bad and the ugly like that's very atmospheric and i just fell in love with the place and of course i you know you hang out at the uh, the starlight Di- diner which is the this cool little bar that's been around there for a long long time talk to the locals and they start telling you ghost stories and like weird things they've seen out in the desert and i just knew that moment i was like i have to find a story that fits this place and i've got to come back and film here and then, you know, as uh, as years went by, I started, you know, I heard about the Marfa lights and Marfa is, you know, it's an interesting place, but it, it's not quite, it doesn't have the uh, the magic that Terlingua has. And so, I, you know, I kind of just decided to take that story and then place it in 
Terlingwin, people do see something kind of like the ghost lights, you know, the Marfa lights out around the Big Bend area. It's not quite like the Marfa lights. So there is some history there to say that, uh, you know, you've, man, when, I mean, especially when you're on the Big Bend, you know, it's 200 miles in any direction of nothing, uh, no light pollution, endless uh, starscapes. The, you know, you, you'll never see the Milky Way like you will in the Big Bend, you know, and, you know, people see things. They see lights in the sky and uh, it just seemed like the perfect place to to set a film and it's extremely haunted apart from that as well <laughs> it, it's so cool to get verbatim the stories directly from the locals oh yeah no it's incredible you know we the first time i was there was i i was there like i said for day of the dead but we also came a week early so i was there for halloween as well a Terlingua local, which it is a ghost town, but, you know, uh, land is cheap out there and people go out there with uh, airstreams and just, you know, just live in the middle of nowhere because they just don't want to be around people anymore. They enjoy the, the, the stars and the desert and pack of Lone Star and they would rather just, you know, stay away from people. <laughs> but they're really cool folks. They're very, very artsy and they're never... Uh, very far away from uh, wanting to tell you a ghost story, but especially on Halloween. So I heard all kinds of strange stories. Like one guy told me that he had grown up in the area since he was a little kid. Uh, he was this uh, older Hispanic guy. And so just imagine I'm sitting in this like adobe lined uh, bar, you know, something out of an old West. I'm sitting here drinking a beer. And this guy tells me about how when he was a kid, he was chased by an owl who he was convinced was actually a, a witch's f familiar, which he called, you know, La Bruja. And that his grandmother specifically told him that he he needed to be wary of the uh, La Bruja or the owl that um, was there because she could curse him. And this is the sort of just, uh, you know, the kind of like day to day living reality that a lot of these people are out there with. You know, the folklore is like part of their life. So, yeah, it's it's very incredible. And the conviction in his eyes when he told me this, you know, was, you know, I, I have no doubt he experienced something uh, out there and that people do experience things out there that are, uh, you know, a little bit outside of reality or not reality, but outside of like day to day life that most people uh, live with. I have to say, out of all of the legends that I've heard and specifically ones that you could almost call cryptids. La Bruja is one that I totally believe in because I've heard so many different stories from so many different people. And like you said, they are absolutely convinced this isn't just some wild owl that's all of a sudden deciding to attack humans. It's, it's like this real creature that they're seeing that looks similar to an owl, but it's not really an owl. Right. Yeah, it definitely is like a piece of that kind of southwestern, you know, border town folklore. There's a lot of a lot of stories like that. And it kind of mixes with Native American folklore as well in the area. The idea of these kind of changeling type type creatures. Very strange. There's ghost stories galore out there. It is a ghost town. So people see like one explanation for the lights as they appear on Terlingua is that they're actually the ghosts of dead miners holding, you know, lanterns as they try to find their way back after a mining accident or something like that personally haven't seen anything out there you know we filmed at an abandoned mine when we were filming in october uh for the ghost lights and you know on our way back we just for fun turned out all of our headlamps in the middle of just this big vast darkness and and i half expected to see like some old miner totter out of like a, a mine shaft you know or something but we didn't darn it you know that would have been cool Maybe, or it might have been terrifying. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. When you say you were filming at the mines, did you go into any of the mines, or were you just kind of along the outside of them? Well, thankfully, all the the mine shafts around Terlingua and really the entirety of Big Bend around the 60s or 70s, I believe, were graded over. So no, you actually, I mean, I guess if I had some power tools and I would probably be breaking some serious laws if I did that, you probably could get into the mines. But no, thankfully, they're, they're all blocked off. But you can stand on the grates and look down at these, you know, three, four or five hundred vertical shafts. That's a pretty harrowing experience in and of itself. So, but no, it, we filmed... Um, around on top of but not in um and i'm not sure you know my insurance would have covered that so <laughs> yeah i was i was thinking it would be really dangerous but on the other hand i was also thinking you know we talk about mines and caves all the time and how drilling into the earth almost seems to release something and a lot of people have experiences inside those mm. so i was going to see if you'd had anything yeah. like that but clearly not 
No, I mean, you know, I, it would have been cool. Yeah, I mean, that kind of reminds me of, like, the Hellier series and, uh, you know, all the strange things that, that happen when you, you dig into the Earth. You know, I, I mean, I have no doubt that there are things... I'm I'm a believer, hundred percent. You know, like I am. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been watching a lot of X Files, so that's like what I'm thinking about right now. But you know, I'm definitely the molder, right? I'm ready to believe anything, and I I certainly think that when you dig into the earth, there's something that happens, especially in these very remote kind of almost mystical locations you know certainly like this area was a sacred area for the chisos apaches and they were driven out by these miners that were just hungry for the raw elements in the earth so yeah i mean i don't know there's no explanation that i can think of but i i think there is certainly something happening there well what's unique about terlingua i was looking up a little bit of information on it because when you hear an old mining town you want to look into it and it's like oh is it gold or silver and it had a really interesting background there because it was this material called, I think they called it cinnabar, which they would turn into cinnabar. Quick, yeah, mm-hmm. which would be like quicksilver, which we would know as mercury. Right. Yeah. And you can actually still see it uh, when, when you're out there. Um, there's red striations in the rock I and mean, even on the ground, you know, just rocks that, that are just laced with this deep crimson, which is the, the cinnabar. And, and of course, mercury is extremely valuable. And it became even more valuable after World War One and World War Two because they can be used for military instruments and that sort of thing. And it really was the end of World War Two that kind of brought about the end of Terlingua because there's this massive demand for mercury they bled the trilingual mines dry you know and then after that it's there there wasn't really anything left and it sat empty for a long time except for a couple of weirdos that thought oh i i could live in this crazy long lost martian place (laughs) (laughs) back on my bookshelf behind me i've got a little piece of uh, cinnabar that i just you know because it's easy you can just walk up to the uh, side of a mountain pick it off i would be careful with it it does burn on your skin if you leave it too long and of course if you eat it you'll probably get very very sick so don't do that (laughs) because of course mercury is very poisonous true so uh, aside from playing with the cinnabar and being cautious with that (laughs) what would you say you know other than i i did see that you have a newborn at home so what would you say your biggest challenge was during your filming yeah, well, COVID was a huge thing. I I think that is I mean, that's a that's a challenge for everybody, but specifically in filmmaking, it's such a an intimate experience for both actors and crew, really. You know, on an indie scale, it's compounded even more because when you've got 100 million dollars to spend, um you can put up your ent- entire cast and crew in a hotel for 2 weeks, COVID test them, and then keep them in that hotel and away from the world until you're done filming 30 days later but that, it takes a lot of money on an indie scale and i paid for this out of my own pocket so you know and i don't mind telling you our budget we spent uh, seven thousand dollars on this film which i i don't know if you know anything about like indie films but like a million dollars is considered micro budget i was um, saying that's sm- hardly small anything. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still yeah, a chunk out um, of your own personal pocket <laughs> yeah Part of, yeah, I mean, part of like what 2020 kind of did for, you know, me and my co-producer, John Francis McCauley, who actually plays uh, a character in the film as well. We just kind of, it's like that kind of memento mori thing, like, you know, a big pandemic sort of jolts you and you go like, I just need to chase my dreams no matter what. Like, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of waiting for the million dollars because it's hard to get and it's harder to get during COVID because people, you know, kind of zipped up their pocketbooks the investors. So we just thought, okay, well, like, how can we make a film that looks like a million dollar picture for $7,000? Because that's all I had. And so the way we did that is that we shot in 10 days, which is insane. <laughs> Most films shoot for, indie films shoot for a minimum of 18 days. Most films shoot for like 30 to 60 $7,000 only went about 10 days, so that made sense. And we only shot it with about four people, and that included cast and crew. So I shot the film as well, like, you know, operated the camera. I played a character in the film. My co-producer kind of did everything else. And then the only really other person we had on set was someone doing sound, because I'm no good at that. Uh, don't give me a microphone. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, you asked the biggest challenge, and that was really it. How do you, number one, survive 10 days of filming, you know, 10 to 
14 to 16 hours a day in a literal road trip movie because it takes place as our main character, Alex, whose father investigated the Marfalites when he was younger. She kind of follows his footsteps along the way and goes on a literal road, road trip from Dallas to Terlingua to, to uncover the truth. So we we made that journey six, seven hundred, eight hundred miles across Texas as we in filming along the way, which is insane. I'll tell you, it was cool. By the time we made it to Terlingua, we felt like we had been on a real adventure. And I think it was really good for the actress as well. Because, you know, she didn't have to pretend she had made this journey in real time. And I think you can tell when, when you watch. You know, the, the landscapes in Big Bend are massive and grand. And this film feels epic. And, you know, like if you didn't know we spent $7,000, you wouldn't know. Because it doesn't look like it. I can say, honestly, Tim, just the snippet little teaser that you sent to us it looks amazing and i looked at kelly and obviously because we do a podcast and with the mixing and music and all that stuff that i've been learning to do you did an amazing job with the music and causing this kind of creepy overtone to it it's it's wonderful and so i'm just like the rest of it is like this wow yeah definitely (laughs) impressed well, thank you. You know, and it's it's not quite done yet. We are, we, we picture locked, which means that the edit, the physical edit, you know, like arranging shots and that sort of thing is done. Uh, we picture locked last week. Right now we are in the process of having an original score made, which you, you heard a, a piece of. Getting special effects done because it is a sci-fi thriller. Special effects are very important. And then the sound mixing, which is actually, you know, mixing the music and all the sound effects and, and everything. And so we actually are going to be, and probably by the time this this airs, we will have a Indiegogo campaign, which is like a Kickstarter up, and we're we're needing to raise about fifteen thousand dollars to finish the movie. It's funny that finishing the movie costs more than making the movie, but that's just like how the math worked out, <laughs> you know. And I'm kind of tapped out. I I put my personal savings in, into this, and you know I have a newborn now, and so uh, my wife has been very patient with this passion project. So now, yeah, we're uh, but we're giving out cool perks as well, like props from the movie. Our grand prize is an actual experience uh, with the real Marfa lights, which we're still kind of working out the details on that. Yeah, just just cool stuff. So, you know, I don't want to turn into a sales pitch, but we do need help. And it's going to look amazing. And, uh, you know, we just need a little like kind of kick down the road to get there. Well, I know Kelly and I are definitely in. So you're going to have to tell us where do we go in order to do that. Absolutely. Starting on February 15th and running for a whole month on Indiegogo. So I'll I'll make sure and share a link with, with you whenever we have it. You said, oh, I could talk to you about the legends of Big Bend. And I was like, how weird, because we have a Big Bend, Florida, that's very haunted, too. So I was like, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? So, yes, we definitely want to hear about the legends there. It definitely is a creepy area with a lot of those. There's so much. There's a really good book out there that I would suggest your your listeners get called The Legends of Big Bend. Tales, Tales from Big Bend? Um, I've got it back here somewhere. Okay, so the book is called Tales of the Big Bend by Elton Miles. And just amazing, amazing stories. Because of the Hispanic influence on the area, there's a lot of like kind of La Llorona-esque stories out there. And they're, they're not, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that, which is, you know, the wailing woman who drowned her baby or children in a river. And that shows up all across, like, Mexico and in America and even in, like, South America. The, the Big Bend versions, it's kind of a variation on that. There's one story called The Ghost of Agua Fria Cliff, which uh, Agua Fria, you can actually see it's this big, rot, uh, huge volcanic mountain structure out on the way between Alpine and Big Bend. And, you know, legend has it is that there was a, a either Hispanic or Native American woman who had a baby and the baby was either born with some sort of strange defect or or born under some sort of cursed cosmological sign. So so basically this baby is doomed, according to local lore, and might end up growing into something kind of monstrous, um, almost like cannibal monster. 
this child, you know, is going to be born a monster. So she takes the baby to the top of Agua Fria Cliff, and against everything in her soul, she knows that for the better, the betterment of her community, her village, and the child, that she she must throw her child from the cliff. There, there's kind of some some racist Native American tropes in this, so I it's kind of hard to accept the story as a hundred percent true. But what is true is that for over a hundred years, ranchers in the area will hear what sounds like a baby's cry in the middle of the night, kind of coming over the wind from Agrafree Cliff. Some say that they'll hear shortly afterwards uh, the sound of a woman wailing as well. So, you know, who who knows exactly? You know, I, I think sometimes we create stories around phenomena to explain it. That doesn't negate the fact that the phenomena exist. So exactly what the story behind that is, I don't know. But there's plenty of evidence that you can hear something strange out near Agua Fria Cliff. Some of the other stories, have you all ever heard, and it's kind of a strange history, but have you looked into uh, Chief Alsate, the uh, Apache chief? No. In the late 1800s, the Chisos Apaches, which I, I had mentioned, which interesting thing, Chisos is uh, supposedly an Apache word meaning ghost. So you have the Chisos Mountains, so that's like the ghost mountain. So it just adds more like kind of woo to the whole area, right? Real history, Chief Alsate was uh, fighting basically guerrilla warfare against the Mexican army who were trying to basically push them out of the Big Bend area. They were ultimately all captured and then executed in Ohinanga, uh, which I had mentioned before as that kind of just border town over the Mexico side. But uh, one explanation for the strange lights that people see out in the Big Bend area, and this would be more like the ghost lights of Terlingua, is that it's his ghost carrying a torch and lighting fires to lead the uh, spirits of his lost people back to their their native land. So sometimes they're actually referred to as Alsata lights or Alsate's ghost. And there, there's actually another interesting thing. Uh, there is a, a cliff, a very strange looking cliff uh, near Study Butte in Terlingua, just outside of Terlingua, that they call Alsate's face. Uh, because when you look at it from a certain angle, it appears to be Alsate's face uh, in profile facing upwards. And then, of course, that's the, the legend is that that's, you know, his uh, his spirit and how he was, you know, finally able to make it home to his ancestral lands. I talked to one guy when he was out hiking in Big Bend, saw what looked to be a ghost of a Mexican peasant with coal black eyes following him in the middle of the desert, staring at them uh, while they were camping overnight. And then he would look, he would see him out of the corner of his eye. And then when he would look directly at the apparition, it would be gone. It's all, all kinds of weird stuff. You know, it's, uh, it's just a very strange place. I don't know. It's, it's like the Bermuda Triangle of Texas, almost in the density of weirdness out there. Do they ever talk about the chupacabra in that area? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Chupacabra, there is kind of the, like I said, La Bruja sort of things, you know, like just strange animals. One point I had read about a weird kind of half man, half dog creature, kind of similar to the Beast of Bray Road that was seen like deep in Big Bend. Because Big Bend, as I mentioned, you can drive 100 miles and still be in the, the state park of Big Bend and not even to Mexico yet. It's, you know, just this vast area. And there's some places deep, deep in in the desert there that people have seen this weird dog man monster crazy place out there really all the rock structures out there like have this almost like martian look and feel to them part of the enchantment of of the area but it's also kind of there's something about the place that kind of like sets you on edge and you're sort of just by like being in the place primed to expect strange things Tim, this has been fascinating. I love hearing about independent film from an independent filmmaker. Obviously, we're into indie podcasting. So it's just great to listen to creators who are living their dream and putting it out there. And while you're doing that, you're also getting to do all this paranormal stuff, too. 
Um, yeah, well, thank you. It, you know, th- this has been just really an incredible project. I mean, making making a film in the middle of a pandemic was both challenging and exciting. You know, making my first feature film, like going to this place, the Big Ben that I love so much, witnessing the actual phenomena unexpectedly uh, while we're filming. You know, I haven't ta- talked too much about the story. Essentially, it is a story of a daughter trying to connect with her father. So she comes home after the death of her father and this is a fictional piece she's been very estranged from him and uh, has followed in his footsteps he was a journalist she's a journalist now but she's just kind of lost touch and uh, she finds this cassette tape of her father back in the 70s interviewing a old miner who actually witnessed uh, as a child and as a young adult uh, a very close encounter with the ghost lights and so Alex the main character decides that kind of in this effort to sort of like like postmortem mend this relationship with her father goes on this trip to uncover the truth kind of in his footsteps. And so, you know, it, it is a story for people that love the X-Files. It's a story for everybody that loves paranormal 14 stories. But it's also a story about connecting with people that we've lost touch with or maybe even actually lost. I mean, I feel like it's a story for for everybody. I mean, it's something that I think we can all, especially after 2020, when we have either literally or figuratively lost so much. It's a story about trying to connect with what we've lost. Might want to use a Ouija board or uh, do a seance to connect with people that they they've lost. She does it by following his footsteps, and so it's kind of it's it's kind of like a form of channeling that she's going through. And uh, you know, and some very weird stuff happens along the way, and ultimately at the end into the film, she encounters the ghost light. Sounds like it's a great paranormal film with a lot of heart behind it. Yeah, and that's that's the kind of movies I, I like to make. That's the kind of movies I like to watch. And there's so much that to be said about a good paranormal story because it can latch on to those ideas of, uh, well, spiritual ideas, really, about love and loss and life after death. You know, I mean, like, truly important real spiritual problems can sort of be wrapped up in a nice paranormal story that the world will love and watch and not realize that they've kind of been asked to like sit back and like think about life a little bit in the meantime. Tim, I know you're still in post-production, but have you guys considered how are you going to be releasing the film? Where will people be able to watch it? That kind of thing. So our plan is, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to do the Indiegogo campaign starting in February 15th, and that will run for a month. Hopefully get all the uh, cash we need to pay our sound mixer and effects artist and in that. The ultimate goal is, thankfully, the film festival scene has really opened up again. You know, 2020 just shot down everything. Rightfully so. You don't want to put thousands of people in a theater together until you know how to handle it. And it's looking like things are going to open up. So that's really the plan is, you know, all the quote-unquote genre film festivals and that's like sci-fi horror film festivals usually go from September to November every year. Lots in October. So our plan is to submit to those festivals um, in the next month or two, and then hopefully we get into a bunch and, you know, people can see it in festivals late this year. And then I would love to get theatrical distribution. Certainly it will eventually show up on Amazon Prime for you to either watch on demand or rent for $3.99, I'm really am a cinema nerd, so I, I want to see it in theaters. So that's uh, that's my hope. Theaters are opening again. Hollywood can't make films fast enough right now because they kind of have a big ship to move amid the pandemic. We got our film done quickly, and we're going to put it out and hopefully, you know, maybe beat the big guys in the game. <laughs> Well, yes, let's hope that you do. We'll be checking around here in Florida. They have a bunch of the film festivals here, so I'm sure it'll pop up somewhere here. Well, thank you again, Tim, so much for contacting us about this and letting us pick your brain. It's been wonderful. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And, you know, if people want to follow the progress of the film, uh, see the Indiegogo when it goes up, you can check us out on Facebook, Spectrograph Films, and that's S-P-E-C-T-R-O-G-R-A-P-H, like the spectrograph that, you know, people use to uh, uh, look up into the stars and see the color of distant planets. Uh, spectrograph Films, or you can go to spectrographfilms.com, which has links to all of our social media. We do a lot on Instagram as, as well. You know, we have more films in kind of in the pipeline that we're uh, working on right now as well that are a little bit more top secret and not not totally finished so if you're a lover of good filmmaking if you like paranormal if you like horror that's that's kind of movies we make so excellent well we're looking forward to it (laughs) 
All right. Well, you have a nice weekend. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Bye-bye. Kelly, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking to Tim. He was so entertaining. I really love how in-depth he got with his descriptions. And I can't wait to see the film. Absolutely. And of course, we're indie podcasters, so we love any kind of independent creators. We try to support them, whether it's on Etsy or somebody making their own film here. So absolutely. If you guys have a little bit extra, maybe you could throw it Tim's way and help him out in getting the post-production on that film done. While we were looking into this area, we saw that there were some other legends and stories that have been told about this Big Bend area as well. Yeah. So in the same area is the legend of the murder maverick. This is a large black phantom steer with the word murder branded on one side in letters nearly a foot high. The murder maverick is an omen of death. The story behind the branding features two ranchers fighting over ownership of the steer, and one man murdered the other. Cowboys who worked for the murdered man roped, captured the steer, and branded it with the word murder, so that the owner would always remember what he had done. This steer then followed the murderer everywhere he went. He ended up leaving the country. The steer ran into the mountains of Big Bend, and it's said that anyone who sees the steer and reads the words on its side, they will be murdered shortly afterward. So we always get excited when we see cows, especially little baby cows out in the field. Yeah, the little bitty babies. We'd be driving through <laughs> West Texas and see this murder maverick and be like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not. <laughs> Logan Hawks writes on the Texas Less Traveled blog, On this particular occasion, we enjoyed the healing waters of the spring a little too long. Soon the shadows covered the river and its canyon walls nearby, and we were quickly consumed by the black of night that is common to an area where there are virtually no cities or subdivisions or electric lights to disrupt the pure magic of night. Armed with an ever-ready flashlight and a big walking stick, we began to count the first stars above and then the millions that seemed to blossom as the night began to close. Kelly, I love being out in these open areas with no lights out there because you really can see the stars. I do, too. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible when you don't have any, when you really are in an area where there's no outside light contamination. It's just incredible what you can see in the night sky. I remember we were camping this one time years and years ago in this mountain city called Gunnison in Colorado, and it was out in the middle of nowhere. And that was the one and only time I ever actually saw the Milky Way. Nice. Yeah. So I was looking up. I'm like, what is that? And we had a scientist who was with us and she was like, that's the Milky Way. So cool. Yeah. When I was a kid, I would always go up to Arrow Bear Music Camp, which was near Arrowhead, Mm -hmm. California. And my favorite thing was just being outside at night and just looking at the stars. And then there was (laughs) there was always a satellite pattern that would cross over this one location. So you could just see them crossing the sky (laughs) in the same pattern. It was a trip when I was young just because I wasn't quite sure what satellites were. Uh-huh. So it was really neat. Makes me wonder what the night sky is going to be like with all of Elon Musk's satellites up there. <laughs> He's putting 60 up there every couple of weeks. A bit of a cluster or something. <laughs> I know. It will be interesting. Is there just going to be this huge line of satellites that you just it's see circling? It's going to look like a video game. Yeah. Things going every which way. To continue, as the river flowed briskly by, an unnerving revelation occurred. We're just a moment before we were sitting very much alone. Chances are good with no one within miles around. The next moment we could vaguely make out silhouetted shadows of people standing on a narrow ledge that bordered the river, maybe 50 yards up its banks. We sat in the hot water silent for a moment as our eyes attempted to focus in the starlight, what little there was. Like everything else in Big Bend, you find yourself looking hard at things you want to see in order to focus on them instead of the great distances and majestic landscapes of the land that seems to blur reality into a torrent canvas of colors and shapes. After waiting for this group, maybe five or six shadowed figures, to approach in our direction and listening intently for the murmured sounds of speech, we finally turn on the flashlight, actually more like a small searchlight, and flash downriver to where the figures were huddled. Except there were no figures revealed in the light. Turning the light off, the faint silhouette outlines reappeared. We turned the light on and off several times after that. We even called to the figures to identify themselves. In Big Bend, anywhere near the river, you must still be watchful and careful because of the drug smugglers and illegals that cross here frequently, the way it has been for centuries. But no one answered our challenge, and in spite of how many times we turned the light on and off, the figures would appear and then seem to disappear respectively. Finally and rather quickly, we pulled ourselves out of the water, slammed on our pants over wetsuits, and slipped on our shoes. We were distracted for only moments, but when equipped with clothing and turning our attention downriver to where the figures lurked, we discovered they were gone with the flashlight on and with the flashlight off. 
To this day, we cannot say who or what these shadows were, but I can confidently tell you they were not living beings, for my trail companion and I went in search of those figures, looking over boulders and ridges and walking through the brush on the other side, listening intently and watching for signs, but no signs existed. And I've heard that story many times that people will see these shadowy figures out there. They'll go out to the area where they were and there's no footprints, nothing. Wow. Really interesting. Definitely not a place where you want to see shadow people is when you're out in the middle of nowhere, Big Bend. (laughs) Well, Big Bend is a vast area that is mostly unexplored. So it's not surprising that it has so many legends connected to it. Tim mentioned the Chisos Mountains, which literally means ghost, spirits, and or enchantment. And Big Bend National Park also has the Canyon de Brujas, which translates to Witch's Canyon. Did Tim's crew really experience the Marfa Lights? Is the Big Bend area haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, just another part of Texas we need to get ourselves to. Absolutely. We've been to the east side and the middle. So now we've got to get through. over to the west. We did drive <laughs> through the west, but it was down towards the bottom. True. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Martha wrote us to let us know that she had just listened to the New Orleans episode and really enjoyed it. And she had gone there back in May of 2019. Her children were too busy to hang out with her on Mother's Day. Oh. So she said she ran away from home to New Orleans. Well, that's a great place to do it. (laughs) She traveled by train and splurged on a roomette. And she'll never go back to coach again. She stayed at the Hotel Monteleone, the hotel with the carousel bar. Definitely worth a stop if you've never been there haven't been there so we need to check it out definitely had a room overlooking the street wonderful view but pretty noisy i visited napoleon house and enjoyed both a muffaletta and two pims cups nice so i thought that was cool that we mentioned that both of those things are their specialties there right and we definitely need to get back and experience that for ourselves she said love this place so very much didn't see napoleon but there's always next time nothing otherworldly on this trip but again maybe when i run away the next time And then she's hoping that eventually she can run away one day to a History Goes Bump event. Oh, excellent. And a great possibility is September 11th. Absolutely. 2021. We will be doing a live show in St. Augustine. And we are already working on getting some other events going. I'm going to see about getting us a ghost hunt or something like that on the Friday night at the St. Augustine Lighthouse. And there's so much to do there. So please make a weekend of it. Absolutely. It's such an amazing town. I mean, there's so much to be seen and to do. And I just can't wait. We're going to have so much fun. Yes. Tickets are available. We have it up at the very top on the Spooktacular crew. For those of you not in the crew, I will put a link up on our website. So you just click on the tab for that and you can get your tickets. There's only 60 available, so do not wait on this because we are already selling tickets like crazy. So, Yeah, please do not wait. And we can't wait to meet those that we've gotten to know through the show just to see them in person and kind of COVID aside, give everyone a big hug. (laughs) We heard from Leah. She said, hope you both are well. We absolutely love your show and are paranormal travel history enthusiasts. She was listening to our episode about Hampton Court and wanted to share with us her experiences that they had at Westminster Abbey and at Hampton Court, I guess. My twin sister and I visited England and Scotland back in March 2017. This was the first time we'd ever been overseas, and man, was this the trip of a lifetime. We got to visit so many beautiful palaces and castles during our trip, including Hampton Court and Westminster Abbey. To back up, my sister and I are definitely believers of the paranormal, with my sister being more of an empath than I, but it doesn't make me any less of an enthusiast. During our trip to Hampton Court, we both had a sense of foreboding in the haunted gallery even before we knew what actually happened there. In the chapel on site, I felt immense sadness in the Queen's Loft, which totally makes sense with how many queens lived and found their fate here. They say that Jane Seymour's heart is buried beneath the altar in the chapel, which is super creepy. Then I think here she's saying that they were hoping to see some burial sites there, particularly Henry VIII's. And he wasn't there. But it turns out I found his when I was at Windsor Castle two years later. So she was hoping to see it there, but then she realized he wasn't buried there, but she did see where he was buried. Just a simple stone slab on the floor, which he deserved, in my opinion. No kidding. (laughs) Anyways, while we were visiting Westminster Abbey, which, by the way, is mind-blowing, we were walking down to the older portion of the Abbey and walked into what used to be a prayer room classroom, and my sister instantly felt a presence, a very old presence. She said it was probably the oldest spirit she'd ever encountered, older than old from her words. She felt a sense of immense peace and clarity in that moment, and she said, it's a monk. It's definitely a monk. Once we left, we did more research on the abbey and found out it used to be a monastery before King Henry VIII ended the monasteries in the country. 
again, another situation where we felt something and didn't know the real history behind it. And we found that it's it's kind of cool when that happens. It's actually very cool because you don't have any kind of preconceived ideas. Exactly. And she said since they were talking about Westminster Abbey here, she would love for us to do an episode on it. So we've got it added to the list. Want to thank April for sending your suggestions to us. And one of them, apparently little mischievous things were done at this location. They believe a child spirit was there. So I've added that to the list. <laughs> and that kind of cracks me up because who's going to be mischievous in the afterlife? We, we are. And we're no children. <laughs> That's true. How do we know they're children? It's just us. Exactly. Jenny and the crew said, I experience synchronicities all the time and have as long as I can remember. I had my son in 2006 and one of his nicknames is Big B. So they call him Big B. Ten years later, my nephew and I were doing a public investigation at Waverly Hills. I'm snapping pictures everywhere and reviewing photos the next day. My nephew points this photo out. The picture that she posted in the crew, clearly you can see on the wall there has been scrawled Big B. I saw that. That is so cool. She said, I remember I thought I heard the door and just snapped a picture. So she thought there was something over there trying to get her attention. So she took a picture to see, you know, probably like us trying to capture a ghost. Sure. And instead, she captured something even weirder, really. (laughs) It's very cool. I mean, what are the chances that, I mean, Big B, how many people have that nickname, really? Exactly. So it meant something (laughs) to her. So I was like, whoa, that's weird. So thanks for sharing that, Jenny. Steph and the crew said, not really ghosts, but I live on the third floor, fourth to those of you stateside, of a Victorian tenement building. Occasionally, I will lose or gain floors while walking up them. I normally dismiss it as nonsense, but I just walked my pupper back upstairs after she had a pee, and I visually saw the matrix glitch, giving us an extra floor to walk up. My daughter also says she loses and gains floors. What the hell? Does this happen to anyone else? That's such a trip. And so many times when I get vertigo just walking mm-hmm. along a straight path, I it's you kind of lose it really, for a minute. Yeah, it's really hard to describe. So I would probably going along what you're saying there with Steph is that I wonder if there's something this is an old I mean, it's a Victorian tenement building. And we know that we have found that if a floor is kind of skewed, like sinking, right. sagging in places, it gives you kind of a weird placement in your head and it, it'll make you feel a little woo-woo and sometimes people will think they're having a paranormal experience and it's just your body is having a hard time your brain your vertigo ears yeah, your, whatever your station tubes is throwing ears. you yeah, so it yeah. might just be that the stairs are kind of wackadoo and it's, but it sounds like it's something that happens often and i would think that after the first experience experience of feeling like you either lost a floor or gained a floor, you would be much more in tune with it. I would think so. It's just so you'd be more focused and knowing how many flights you've gone up or mm-hmm. down. So I don't know. It's just it could be a trick of the brain. I think my thing is that it's stairs. If it was right. and I don't know what else you could compare it to because counting floors would be different. Stairs can sometimes just throw you because sometimes I'll be going down a flight of stairs and all of a sudden my hair, my head will kind of do this weird spinny thing like, whoa. And and I just feel like it's your equilibrium gets thrown off because depth perception and who knows what's going on. That's true. Or it could be a glitch in the matrix. (laughs) It could be. (laughs) Look out for anybody shooting bullets your way, but you should be able to like do some kind of weird back Back bend bend and miss it. (laughs) A la Keanu Reeves. (laughs) If you see a woman in a red dress, run. Oh, my word. Susan wrote over on the History Ghost Bump page on Facebook. And please forgive me. Sometimes you guys post stuff over there and we don't see it because Facebook doesn't let us know. And they hide people's posts over there. So it's almost worthless for them to do it. I I started scrolling through those and going, oh, I didn't see people had written these things months ago. Right. I just listened to episode 345 on the Biltmore Hotels. At the end, you're reading comments and a woman says she felt something sitting on the bed. As I've written previously, I was the director of sales and marketing at a historic resort and consequently have spent a ridiculous number of nights there. I'm writing because my split second reaction to the comment about the bed was, oh, I hate that. Then I had to laugh because of the absurdity of that reaction. Feeling something so frequently that it almost becomes not a big deal is definitely not normal when we're talking about spirits sitting on our beds. I wish they wouldn't do that. (laughs) I just laughed. I was like, can you imagine it happens so often? You're like, God, I hate it when those spirits sit on my bed. (laughs) Wake me up and stress me out and freak me out. Yeah. (laughs) Thank God I have no idea what that's like. And then we have Kelly in the crew, although she spells her name with an I rather than a Y. And she wrote, 
love Thursdays. Y'all make my Friday Eve commute to the operating room so much better. And thank you for whatever work you must be doing in an operating room. I've spent some time in those and you people are just wonderful. My daughter, who is three, gets so excited the second the intro music starts too. She always hums along and mimics the intro. She's going to be as weird as her mama and I love it. Y'all do an amazing job. So I was like, wait a minute, three? I think that's our youngest. This has got to be the youngest (laughs) listener that we have. So I was like, what is her name? So we just want to say hi to Amaya. Hey, Amaya. Hope you're having a great day today. Don't give your mama a mean mug when she doesn't start the podcast soon enough. (laughs) I know. Sometimes it's a little hard to get all those dials going when you have to concentrate on driving. That's true. But I loved the picture that she included, that Kelly included. Yes. She's very cute. giving her a mean mug because she didn't get it started fast enough. Hi, Amaya. I love that you listen. Want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers and HelloFresh. Remember, HelloFresh.com forward slash bump 10 and use your code bump 10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Martha Smith. We'll be burying you under a chest tomb. Thank you so much for joining our executive producers, Martha. We really could not produce this podcast without everyone's support. So we really appreciate you. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. Last month, last month, here we go. (laughs) Last month in the journal, wow. Last month in the journal Cretaceous, oh my. Take a deep breath. Yeah, a few. This is just your first line. We can get through the first line, Kelly. Once that one's out, it's smooth sailing from here. Uh We never have any other bloopers (laughs) after that. (laughs) (laughs) Hush you who had to go grab her chips to help her throat. Everybody thinks it's just me. <laughs> Except there were no figures. Fe- <laughs> <laughs>